Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, George the Fourth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factory, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Can I just tell you something? Tell me something. I've had the most incredible week. Have you been to a castle? I've been to a castle, can't reveal where, um, until next week. And I've met the Time Team gang. It was just so much fun. We met, uh, I met Tony Robinson, mm-hmm. Phil Harding, mm-hmm. Susanna Lipscomb, uh, and all the archaeologists. <laughs> but it's awesome, awesome. I'm going to po- put some photos up on Facebook for you to have a look at. Was Edward I in any way involved in any of it? No, sadly not. Although my at the point at which you left, I'm <laughs> bored. Yeah, go <laughs> home. Um, though uh, we did manage to shoot a, um, a longbow from the battlements, which is really mm-hmm. very exciting. I'll post a video of that too. Jolly good. So hopefully I'll make it on it's telly. Stuff. Yes, yeah. we hope so. Yeah. So we've had some messages. Oh, good. Yeah, crack Firstly, on. people talking about some of the previous episodes as mm. people have been catching up and listening to them. Erin Rasmussen apparently says that she works battliness into everyday conversation. <laughs> as well, she <laughs> should. Yeah. And uh, Athelstan is her particular favourite. Yeah, I, I still Yeah. Now Athelstan did get it. Oh, I'm thinking about Edgar the Peaceable. You are indeed, oh, because Andrew Preffinger said that Edgar the Peaceable deserves the Rex Factor. Mm, it hasn't it been mentioned in a while, but I, d- I don't think I haven't forgotten that grave injustice. No, it was, and I apologise. However, Bob Potter said that with the, it was difficult to give him Rex Factor with a name like that, and maybe if he'd been called Edgar the Hardnut, it would have given him a bit <laughs> yeah. more of a chance. Yeah. Phil Jones thought that Henry the Second's one of the best ones. Henry the Second? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Top, top king. Admitted that there's a slight blip with Thomas Beckett, but Beckett does sound a bit irritating, so... He does, yeah. Sympathy. Fine, kill him. And finally, Deborah Grant said that the Penguin, mm. a.k.a. William III, did have a victory against Louis XIV in 1695, captured uh, Namur. Oh, right, right apologies. So, uh, thumbs up mm. to William III there. We've also had some interesting facts about our last monarch, George III. Yeah. Uh, Laura Rickett said that the American National Anthem was written by a man called Francis Scott Keyes in 1812... Whilst, um, well, he'd been on an English ship during one of the battles of the War of 1812. Yeah. And then when he came off, wrote the poem. Gina Phillips um, pointed out there was a man, John Wilkes, we had last time, mm. who was this um, guy that got sued for libel and became this sort of popular figure for reform. Mm. Um, apparently he was uh, an ancestor of John Wilkes Booth. Oh, right. Assassiner. Yeah, who assassinated assassiner. <laughs> the assassiner of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, right. That's quite interesting. Matthew Constable said that he didn't think we could really give George III much credit for New Zealand, because permanent settlement didn't really occur until 1822 or 1823, by which point George III was dead, mm. and it didn't become officially British until 1840. Oh, right. Under Victoria. OK. Well... So, a little yeah. bit less for George yeah. III, yeah. And I love Alexander Hamilton. Is, uh, oh, she's back. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Hamilton apparently was horrified by the reign of terror, and it's thanks to him working with Washington that when the French Revolution first came along, that France weren't able to get uh, America to join them as allies, which was probably very helpful to Britain. Very helpful. So indeed. well done to Alexander Hamilton <laughs> for helping us out I love him too. Yes. Anyway, on to George IV. Mm. He is born in 1762, son of George III and Charlotte of mecklenburg strelitz and he becomes king in 1820, at which point he is 57 years old. Because of that monstrous reign by George III. Ridiculously yeah. long reign of George III. 
His relationship to Elizabeth II, he is her third great-grand-uncle. Grand-uncle. Grand-uncle, so it's not oh, a direct line, don't know. In terms of his appearance and his character, I'll just refer to the Duchess of Devonshire, Georgiana, mm. a.k.a. Kieran Island. She <laughs> described George IV uh, saying that the Prince of Wales, as he was then, is rather tall, has a figure which, though striking, is not perfect. He is inclined to be too fat and look too much like a woman in men's clothes. His face is very handsome, and he is fond of dress to a tawdry degree. He is good-natured and rather extravagant. I don't know whether she was complimenting him or having a dig there. It's a mix, yeah, isn't a mix it? Back. She was a good friend of his, but oh, I think okay. it's just an honest assessment. Oh, that's pretty good, then. So, here he goes. Mm. He had a very strict upbringing as well. Had to be up by six o'clock in the morning and into school lessons by seven o'clock in the morning. And George III, his father, was very concerned for his morality and insisted that any transgressions be rigorously punished. Right, are we going to see a lot of these transgressions in the future? Unfortunately for George III, <laughs> this does not quite have the intended no. effect. Oh dear. Uh, as it is, George IV becomes a rather rebellious child. Right. Apparently one time when he was ten years old and he was shut out of jo- his father's dressing room, so he then shouted through the keyhole, Wilkes and Liberty! Which was the popular thing that the public was shouting in oh, opposition Wilkes. to yeah. George III. <laughs> yes, that Wilkes. <laughs> So at uh, 12 years old, George III was rather worried that George IV was showing a duplicity, a bad habit of not speaking the truth. Wilkes and Liberty, sorry, that's still pretty fun thing to shut <laughs> As yeah. a 10-year-old. Yeah. Oh, dear. And this continues into his adolescence. Mm. From about the age of 16, he starts to have numerous affairs with women. Right. Uh, actresses, aristocrats, all sorts of people, showers money on his various loves and causes great embarrassment to his father. Particularly controversial was Maria Fitzherbert, who is a Catholic widow to whom George secretly and indeed illegally got married in 1785. Is that illegal because George said that all his children had to have royal blessing? Yeah, all the children had to have royal blessing from the Royal Marriages Act of right. 1772, but also... The Act of Succession, 1701, meant that you couldn't marry a Catholic. Of course, yeah, yeah. So on two levels. Yeah, he's, he's really ha- what, he didn't think that through at all. <laughs> Indeed. Um, if we recall that George III hadn't really liked the Whig party, and in particular Charles James Fox, this mm. very sort of loush, gambling, charismatic radical. Who loved the American Revolution. Loved the American yeah. Revolution. So, of course, George IV becomes best friends with Charles James Fox, ah, his father's good. biggest enemy. Good. They go drinking together, they go gambling together. Fox takes on some of George's mistresses after he's had enough of them. But this is, again, another generation of George's not getting on. It is. This is this cycle needs to end. It is. It and I think it will. <laughs> it will indeed. Um, so George III wrote to his son, George IV, and said, I wish to live with you as a friend, but then, by your behaviour, you must deserve it. When you read this carefully over, you will find an affectionate father trying to save his son from perdition. Mm. However, yeah. it's not really working. Yeah, and I don't imagine he cares. Right, so he's, at the moment, he's, this, he's a teenager, I imagine he'll grow out of it, that's fine. However, it's not so fine, because in 1788, George III has his first attack of porphyria. Ah, the madness. Time for him to grow up. We have, well, we have the Regency Crisis. This is where George III, Porphyria being this sort of attack on the nervous system, so it appears like he's insane. Clearly, he wasn't capable of being king for mm. the time being. So, they would need a Regency. But, of course, the Regent, most logically, would be the Prince of Wales. Yeah. George IV. Pitt knows 
if George the Fourth becomes regent, he'll just sack him, bring in Fox and the Whigs. And Pitt is George the Third's favourite, who's currently Prime Minister. Exactly. Right. So there's this toing and froing between the Whigs, um, who were saying, "Come on, George the Fourth's got to be regent. He's got to be regent." And Pitt saying, "Why don't we just, you know, give it a minute? Give it a minute. Yeah. See if see if the old boy will <laughs> come round. <laughs> turns it about." Yeah. Um, Fox was in Italy at the time, rather inconveniently, so George demanded that he hop it back, mm. which he did, rather ill and tired, unfortunately. So in Parliament, when they're debating it, uh, Fox declared that George had as clear as express a right to assume the reins of government and exercise the power of sovereignty. Mm. So in other words, he was saying George is clearly the man, so he can just take the power. Seems pretty, pretty clear-cut. He's the next in throat. But that it presumes that the royals have got more power than Parliament, and it should be that Parliament is, in effect, saying, yes, this is the next person. OK, so they should, they're saying they should decide who's regent. Exactly. So Fox overstepped it a little bit. Pitt won that debate. They did ultimately come to an agreement whereby George IV would be regent with limited powers. Right. But then George III recovered. Ah. So it didn't matter. Right. Okay. But either way, George IV doesn't come out of this very well. Mm. Doesn't look good on his reputation. However, things carry on. After the French Revolution, he's a little bit reconciled with his father when he sees the horrors of what can happen to royals. Oh, right, yeah. Like getting yeah. their heads chopped off. And he's still massively in debt. So in 1794, George III agrees to pay off his debts and give him an increased allowance. However, there is a condition. He must get married. And he gives him free reign. He says, look, you choose who you want to get married. A happy marriage, you'll have children, you'll become a better character. George IV rather sulkily uh, says that uh, one damn German Frau is as good as another. And just takes whatever he's given. Right. So he is given his cousin, Caroline of Brunswick. His first cousin? Uh, quite possibly. Crumbs. But they, they were into that. Lots of yeah, yeah, they love it. George III, very pleased with the match, but other people weren't too sure. Caroline was very coarse in her language, very lively, an unpredictable character, outspoken, and also had something of a disinclination to wash. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How so, do we know this? Do we, is there uh, sources saying how smelly she was? Or? Yes, George IV frequently made rather oh, right. comments about it. <laughs> right, OK. When they first meet, it's not exactly love at first sight. <laughs> George IV takes one look at her and then says to an attendant, I'm not well. Pray get me a glass of brandy. <laughs> and uh, Caroline noted oh, that George dear. was very stout and by no means as handsome as his portrait. So... He's stuck, though. He's got to get on with it. He's got to marry her, and he does. But George IV was drunk throughout, and he before the ceremony. No. At one point, everything had to stop when, during a prayer, he just suddenly stood up for no reason. <laughs> Someone had to speak to him and say, shut up, get down, get down. So not even just sort of Dutch courage, just proper... He was roaring drunk. Roaring drunk. Wow. The wedding night um, wasn't uh, quite what she might have been dreaming of because he fell asleep in the fireplace. Yeah, okay. Not on. No, no. (laughs) However, he did clamber into bed the next morning and nine months later, a daughter, Charlotte, was born. So he waited till it all worn off. That's a strange way around. But uh, he probably... And apparently he said he had to steal himself with a few more drinks to overcome the uh, unpleasantness of her person. Can you imagine if Prince William... Turned up in front of six million, <laughs> or how many, how many million viewers, yeah. and uh, roaring junk, <laughs> stumbled his way through. <laughs> yeah. um, this is unbelievable. 
They don't like each other. They can't be reconciled. Three days after the birth, George IV made a will in which he declared Maria Fitzherbert as the wife of my heart and soul and left Caroline just one shilling. Oh, that's a a bit... Leave her nothing. That's... (laughs) Exactly. That's making a point. Mm. They both wanted separation. George IV begged his mother, Charlotte, to make George III realise that Caroline was the vilest wretch this world was ever cursed with. Mm. But he refuses. However... Things don't look up for George III. He goes into a terminal decline. Mm. In 1810, he's devastated by the death of his youngest and favourite daughter, Amelia. Still lucid for a while, and he rather sadly agrees to a regency. But there's a delicate matter of what to do about Amelia's will, because it turned out she was in love with an army officer, uh, but her parents would never have approved, never have allowed the marriage. But in her will, she leaves these precious jewels to the officer. Right. Which would be a bit of a scandal, then, if mm. they're given to the officer and it's clear what's happened. But mm. George IV very tactfully deals with it, persuades him to renounce his claim to the jewels and take financial compensation instead. Oh, that's all this tactful. Isn't it? And before George III completely loses his marbles, he is, to a certain extent, reconciled with his son. He says, The Prince of Wales has a heart. I always knew he had. I will never call him anything but George in the future. How thankful I ought to be to Providence for giving me such a son in the hour of my trial. This is so like my dear son. I wish we knew what he called him when he Before, wasn't yes. George. Yeah. <laughs> However, 1811, he does disappear, and George IV becomes the Prince Regent. Right. Prime Minister is Spencer Percival. In 1811, he insisted that the Regency powers be limited in case George returned. Mm. But by 1812, it was clear that mm. was never going to happen. So George IV is in all intents and purposes king at that right. point. He's got full power. Um... George apparently moved by the sight of his ailing father. He didn't make any changes to government. Mm. And, indeed, he left the Whigs in opposition. He now saw them as dangerous. In the context of the French Revolution, he's changed. He no longer likes reform and this sort of thing. He thinks, actually, keep things as they are. Reform leads to cutting people's heads off, and that's a bad thing. Uh, However, he does have to make a slight change to government when uh, Spencer Percival is assassinated. The one and only Prime Minister. Prime Minister to be assassinated by this rather madman, John Bellingham. So, in comes uh, Robert Jenkinson, Earl of Liverpool. Um, He was Prime Minister from 1812 to 27. Third third longest in history. And, uh, indeed, he is the man after whom Liverpool Street in London is named. Oh, really? Yes. Though I haven't quite managed to work out why. No, it's not anywhere near Liverpool or in the direction of. No. Hmm. Anyway, if you know, let us know. It's a difficult time, the Regency. Lots of great cultural stuff going on, but at home, after the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815, Britain is no longer at war. And of course, when you've had a major war, the economy tends to suffer when you get to the peaks. There's poor harvest, economic conditions are difficult because people are no longer ordering armaments and weapons. You've got all these soldiers coming back and being discharged, so labour, needing jobs, labour prices go down. It's a very difficult period. There's lots of civil unrest, growth in radical reform movements, and indeed in the radical press. And we see things like the Luddites, who are these groups that are destroying machines because they're taking their jobs, cotton workers striking. It's quite a difficult period. And the defining event of this is the Peterloo Massacre in 1819. This is where there was going to be a protest meeting in Lancashire, but it was broken up by magistrates Mm. who had the cavalry charge into this crowd, killing 11 people and wounding many others. General outrage and the government responds strongly with the six acts which crack down on reform groups and seditious meetings, as it called it. Right. However, George III finally in 1820 dies, and George IV becomes George IV. Right. 
But we can really <coughs> we can really count those previous eight years, was it? We'll count them, I think, for his scores for everything except longevity. Yeah. That okay. still has to be his kinginess. Before George does anything as king, he wants to sort out his marriage, namely by getting rid of it. <laughs> he wants a divorce. Yeah. He'd sent Caroline over uh, into exile in 1813. He'd exiled her now. Yes, once he became regent, he sent her off, so she went off to Europe and Italy in particular. She'd probably enjoy that more than me. Uh, but she comes back in 1820 thinking, right, well, now I'm going to be queen. Because mm. she's still married. So this, of course, is the problem. And the background to this, she becomes this kind of focal point for all the radical unrest and the reform groups. They see her as this wronged woman. She's quite popular. She's very outgoing, lively character. So people like her, and all this sort of unrest that's going on everywhere else gets put under her as a focal point. She is right. the figurehead of right. all of this stuff. Yeah. And it's a very... It's a time of unrest. We saw the Peterloo Massacre in 1819. In 1820, there's a thing called the Cato Street Conspiracy, where these groups called the uh, Spencian Philanthropists plotted to assassinate the entire cabinet. That's quite audacious. Very the audacious. Cabinet. The entire cabinet. They were going to be at dinner and they were just going to storm in with guns and grenades oh, and okay. all sorts of things. Mm. Found out very early on and all arrested, so it's fine. This is an indication that, you know, things are mm. edgy mm. at this period. Anyway, Caroline comes back into England and George is going to deal with her once and for all. Met her at the ferry, presumably. Didn't, didn't really see no. each other too much. Indeed, there was a point when Napoleon died. Um, a courier came over and told George IV, your greatest enemy is dead. <laughs> to which George IV said, is she by God? <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. So he decides that she's going to be divorced and he has to get this going. So he decides House of Lords are going to hear all this evidence against her conduct while she's been in exile because he's had spies. Right. Spying on her, gathering evidence. Parliament say... This isn't a good idea. She's really popular. Public aren't going to like it, but George insists he wants rid of her. So he has to go through Parliament to get a divorce? Parliament. So it's uh, House of Lords um, has the Bill of Pains and Penalties. Mm. So all these witnesses come forward and give accounts of what she's been up to, what she's been doing, mm. all this sort of thing, so that they'll be able to get an annulment. Poor woman. Or divorce. Well, indeed, the uh, certainly what the public think, it's... A very narrowly scrapes through the House of Lords. Mm. But the government drops the bill because there's no way that it's going to get through the Commons. Right. And public agitation is such that they don't even want to test it. So, it's dropped. Caroline... She stays. ...is still She's technically safe. married to him. She attends then afterwards a Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral and apparently crowds of about 50,000 people came out to cheer her and all this sort of stuff. She really okay, captured the public really mood. However, undeterred... George IV carries on, and he needs a coronation. Mm -hmm. Problem, of course, is Caroline. So he orders she doesn't take any part, doesn't come to London, doesn't come anywhere near it. She stays away. She's not having any of that, though. So she comes to London dressed in velvet robes, wearing a crown, but is refused entry to Westminster Abbey. Really? All the doors are locked to her. Apparently, allegedly, at one of them, she was asked to display her ticket. Wow. To which uh, one, somebody with her pretty much said, do you know who she is? Do you know who I am? <laughs> this is just vindictive, though. Just have her standing at the back. She's not allowed in at all, sent away, and indeed the crowd turns against her at this point because she's got a pretty decent settlement mm. once the bill was dropped. So she got her money. She's no longer this reformist figure who's been given thousands of pounds yeah. compensation, and the crowds jeer her and boo her as she oh, makes right. her way back 
Okay. Utterly embarrassed, and three weeks later she dies. Is this suspicious? Well, I mean, some people suggested it was suspicious, but I think she, she was just happened to be ill anyway. Right. It may have hastened her, you know, in terms of psychosomatic mm, mm. emotional conditions. But she dies. She doesn't get into the coronation ceremony, and George the Fourth's problems in that They're sense over. are over. Does he have a really <clears> nasty <throat> comment when she dies? He does say that his sort of fortunes had been turned quite topsy turvy, but uh, I think the politicians were quite keen that he doesn't show his... Dull the wit down a bit on this Yes, they say, don't celebrate too much. The Mm. public might not like it. Anyway, coronation ceremony, first of all. Yeah. George IV spends big. Drunk, was he? No, no, spending money. About £250,000, to be precise, which would be about £19 million today. In contrast, George III had only spent £10,000 on his coronation ceremony. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, he sent a tailor to Paris to copy Napoleon's coronation robe, because he wanted to outdo him. So he had a nine-yard crimson velvet train, tight-fitting 16th-century white satin suit with blue velvet all around it, embroidered in gold and lined with ermine, a black Spanish hat with white ostrich feathers and a heron plume. So he looked like this slightly bizarre, ostentatious bird. Yeah, he was a mishmash of all kings. And it was very uncomfortable as well. Apparently it took eight page boys to carry the train right. um, of his yeah. robe. And without them, George IV would have fallen over because it was so heavy. Right. Indeed, he had to use multiple handkerchiefs throughout the ceremony to mop his sweating brow because yeah. he was so hot <laughs> and used smelling salts to avoid fainting. Really? So it wasn't the most practical no. of uh, things. And afterwards, he has a coronation banquet, as is custom. Another regal affair, 28 chandeliers were above where they were eating, suspended by golden chains, each of them with about 60 wax lights in them. Mm. It's a splendid, well-lit occasion. And there was an immense feast. I can't list everything that was there, but just as a snapshot, £7,500 of beef, £7,000 of veal, 160 geese, 1,500 chicken, uh, £912 of butter, £8,500 of eggs... Not to mention lots of other meats, seafood, wine, port, champagne. All for just 312 guests. Wow! 312 male guests. Because the women were invited to watch from the gallery, but they weren't allowed to have any of the food. He's not not a very nice bloke. And it didn't go too well for them either, the women, because they were under these lights with all these candles. So Mm. after a while, the wax started to drip onto them. And they couldn't go until George went. So they were sat there watching men have this ridiculously opulent banquet. Getting hungry. hot wax dripping all over them. Yeah. Goodness me. I'm going to work out how much that is per person after (laughs) this. And and it's an end of an era. This is the last ever coronation banquet. Also, the last time that the champion comes along, throws down the gauntlet. What's that? Um, Well, it's where it's sort of... Your sort of champion knight Mm. comes along and says, I... It's kind of like in a wedding where you sort of say anyone oh, has right, a reason yeah. it's saying, I challenge you, if you say this is not the mm. rightful king, I will fight you. Mm. No one ever takes it up, of course, but this mm. is the last time it actually happens. Right. So this whole thing goes back, all these medieval practices. Why did they do it? Why did they, cause it oh, oh, was there a sort of... Was it a bit austere after George IV? Much more austere. William IV wasn't into any of this kind of thing at all. Victoria wasn't really thought appropriate, and then it's not been done. Mm. Gone. Okay. However, he's now king. And he's got to do some kinging. Mm. First of all, he goes off on a bit of a tour. Oh, right. Of Britain. Um, he goes to Ireland, goes to Scotland, goes to Hanover, effectively invents the royal state visit. 
Okay, yeah, And yeah. this is a big thing, because George III hadn't been seen in public since 1810, and if we recall, he didn't really go any further away from London than Weymouth. Oh, yeah, he was at least travelled, and mm. so this guy... So suddenly George IV, yeah. he's all over the place. Liverpool, his Prime Minister, George IV, no particularly keen on him, felt he hadn't served him very well over the whole Caroline affair, telling him about how the public hated him and this wasn't a good idea mm. and all this sort of nonsense. He also resented some of the advice that Liverpool gave him, such as that Parliament wouldn't sanction £450,000 to build a new palace. Mm. All Fair these enough. kind of boring yeah, things. Um, however, Liverpool provides very stable and strong government until he suffers a massive stroke in 1827. Right. Has to be replaced. New man comes in. George Canning, a man of humble origins, but he rises to the top. Um, he had resigned over the divorce because he was thought to have had an affair with Queen Caroline. No. Yes. But he comes back in 1822. However... Did, the, <clears throat> sorry, did George IV know of this? He probably knew there were rumours. He probably thought he was just <coughs> good on brave. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> However, unfortunately, his government doesn't last very long. After a few months, he dies suddenly whilst in office. These are the guys are dropping like flies. Next man comes in, Goderick. Right. He's a compromise, Prime Minister. He's a man, you know, he served under Liverpool. He thought he's probably a safe pair of hands. Mm. Unfortunately, he struggles to put a cabinet together and he isn't really emotionally up to the job. So in 1828, George IV accepts his resignation and indeed gives him a handkerchief while he uh, cried his way through the sort of ceremony of handing over the seals. Oh, goodness me. Wasn't quite up to the job. And just as well, because a major issue is about to come along, Catholic emancipation. Right, now George III, he wasn't a fan of this. He wasn't a fan of this. The background is, um, this is an island where there was a Protestant ascendancy. So the majority of the population are Catholic, but all the sort of main officers and indeed MPs have to be Protestant. So Catholics aren't really allowed to do all these sorts of things. George III had opposed it. So even though in 1800 there was an act of union, he didn't let Pitt bring in emancipation. So Pitt had resigned. What's more, the union isn't going very well for Ireland. 1817 and 1821 to 22, there were serious famines because they're exporting grain to England. So they're not really getting a benefit of the union. There's a lot of discontent in Ireland. And a man, Daniel O'Connell, comes to the fore. Yeah. 1823, he launches a group called the Catholic Association, which was aimed at repealing discriminatory legislation and, indeed, the Act of Union. So they want out. 1825, um, British attempts to suppress the Catholic Association inflame opinion even more. And in 1828, there's widespread violence and destruction of property and a real fear that might be civil war. This is by the Catholic... Well, who are these people again? Who Catholic Association. This they is, do the destruction. No, no, it's, this is just general civil unrest. Right, OK. So the Catholic Association is a middle-class group that are campaigning for mm. reform, but things have got so heated now that so there's just kicking widespread off, yeah. violence. So somebody's got to deal with this, and in 1828, the rather weak Goderick is replaced by the Duke of Wellington. Right, so he's back from his... He's battles. back from defeating Napoleon Waterloo, yeah. and he's now Prime Minister. Um, how long between the battle? When, when was... 1815 was Waterloo, so this is 13 years Oh, right. After. So, well, yeah. Um, he's the first Irish-born Prime Minister. Though he wouldn't admit it. Though he wouldn't admit it, necessarily. Um, and he hadn't previously been sympathetic to Catholic emancipation, so that was one of the reasons George made him Prime Minister, because he thought he'd just say no and not let it happen. So George IV wasn't a fan of Catholic emancipation either? No. All right, yeah. Um, reluctantly, Wellington resigned his position as Commander-in-Chief because people said you can't be Prime Minister and Commander-in-Chief of the yeah, Army. Yeah, fair enough. 
However, he still behaves like a general, mm. and it's from this period that he gets his nickname, the uh, the Iron Duke. And apparently, allegedly, after his first cabinet meeting, he was said to have recorded an extraordinary affair. I gave them their orders, and they wanted to stay and discuss them. <laughs> yeah, that must be quite a difficult um, change of role. Indeed, he didn't really adjust, and as such, in um, 1828, various people resigned from the government. Mm. And as a result, there were a series of by-elections, one of which was in Clare, in Ireland. Mm. And Daniel O'Connell decided that he was going to fight this by-election. And, in fact, he won it. But this is unfortunate, because as a Catholic, he isn't allowed to take a seat in Parliament. Yeah. So you have the position where someone has won an election, but isn't able to but take they, a seat. But they were allowed to run in elections, but not win an election. They should have said from the start, <laughs> what's your religion? Protestant, yeah. well, fine. Yeah. However, he's won the seat, and Wellington sees... Even though he hadn't liked it before, he thinks, look, there's going to be civil war, this can't go on, we've got to do something about it, we need to have Catholic emancipation. Okay. George IV isn't too chuffed about this, and indeed his brother, the Duke of Cumberland, very vigorously opposed to the whole idea, but Wellington stamps his foot, says that he's going to resign the government. He, he stamps his foot. Not, not literally, literally stamps, stamps his foot. <laughs> no. Or maybe his Wellington boots. <laughs> he is, of course, named, they were, of course, named after him. He threatens to resign the government, there's no alternative, and George IV caves in. And in 1829, we have the Catholic Relief Act. Catholics are enabled to hold office, except for minor posts close to the throne, and take seats in Parliament. Well, that's that's good. I mean, that's a little too late, I might think. But yes. Yeah. A positive step in the right yeah, direction. Yeah. However, for George IV, there's not much longer to go. Right. He gets rather obese, embarrassed to be seen in public, and became a recluse who just tended to be in Windsor and Brighton. Why? Um, why was he, just because of his weight? Because of his appearance, he was embarrassed. Um, he suffered from gout and rheumatism, went blind in one eye and complained that he was as blind as a beetle, suffered severe spasms of breathlessness, which um, make him also go black in the face. Right. And then doctors give him a glass of brandy and he'd feel much better and go off for a ride in his carriage. Mm. 26th of June, 1830, he woke up at about two o'clock in the morning, took some medicine with a sip of tea, and they went back to sleep. But at three o'clock he woke up with a lurch when apparently a blood vessel burst in his stomach. And he clutched his physician and cried, Good God, what is this? My boy, this is death. <laughs> and then fell forward and died in the arms of the physician. That is amazing last words. That is, they are fantastic. At the age of 67, 1830, George IV is no more. He must be in incredibly bad shape, but from all that food. Pretty shocking. We'll go into that later. He yeah. was in very bad shape indeed. They are brilliant last words. That's fantastic. So, that is the life and reign of George IV, but now it's time to review him. How well will he yeah. do? Okay. Battleliness! Well, it's a tricky one, this, because... On the one hand, we think, oh, there's not too much to talk about here. On the other hand, I think last time I shouldn't have included anything for George III that happened during the Regency. Right. Because it makes it complicated to score George and then third and then score George IV. Mm. Things which happened, which we went into a lot of detail last time, under the Regency, and thus under George IV's effective rule. The War of 1812, which we sort of alluded to earlier, this was when Britain resisted... Uh, America's attempts to invade Canada mm. and burnt down the White House mm-hmm. after having spotted of banquet beforehand. Yeah. And it's in 1815, during the Regency, under George IV, that Wellington and Blücher defeat Napoleon at Waterloo and thus end the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. 
Because that was his final <clears> bout of madness. That was his yeah. final bout of madness to George III. And indeed, it was to George IV that Napoleon wrote his uh, surrender. He's saying, I have put myself under the protection of British laws, which I entreat of your royal highness as from the most powerful, the most constant, and the most generous of my foes. Yeah, okay. Is there anything that is less great? Is there, any, is there clear black and white post-18... When did George III well, die? Well, George III dies in 1820, so mm. of course, then we have peace. Mm. And the thing is that once George IV is king, it's post-war, there isn't fighting going on. Is there anything that he did specifically to um, that we can accredit this piece to him for? Because that would be, that'd be worth it. He was a firm supporter of Wellington and right. the war against Napoleon. Indeed, some of the Allies at certain points would have been prepared to take a kind of a, a treaty with Napoleon, potentially leaving him in power. Mm. But he was, George IV committed to restoring Louis XVIII of France and defeating, completely defeating Napoleon. He was obsessed with defeating Napoleon. Okay. So we can, in that sense, say that to a certain extent, he encouraged the, the, uh, swift the ultimate the defeat. Um, and then in the in the post-Napoleonic period, was there there was no even there was not even a, a hint of, of battliness that he could have tried to not of any hmm. measurable scale. I mean, there'll be some increases, you know, in terms of territory and things like this, but not really. Yeah, okay. Indeed, the problem for George IV is he isn't ever given any proper military role. Hmm. He was made. Uh, Colonel Commandant of the 10th Light Dragoons, under right. George III, uh, but this was really just an honorary title. And indeed, um, when there was a fear of French invasion, the regiment was withdrawn from the Sussex coast and sent inland. Because <laughs> they're just his toy regiment. Just his toy regiment. Right. The thing is that um, George III's next oldest son, the Duke of York, was, had a very proper army commission. So it wasn't really very sensible to have your two oldest sons off in war, in yeah, battle. Yeah. So he wanted a military role. He wanted to be able to do something, but George III didn't give him anything. Mm. And he didn't actively mm. pursue peace. I mean, he pursued defeat in Napoleon, but yeah. after the there was nothing... There's no war smouldering that he tried to put and out. The Napoleonic Wars is a massive, massive conflict that's... Mm. I mean, including the French Revolutionary Wars, but going back, you know, sort of 20 years, in fact. Yeah. So you're not then going to embark on another war. No. He did in 1811, as regent, make himself a field marshal, so he designed himself a special uniform, which apparently weighed about £200. <laughs> and he did think, and he did try and convince everybody that he was the military genius behind defeating yeah, Napoleon. he's just a fantasist. He believed he was the one that created the alliance that defeated Napoleon. In 1821, Wellington showed him around the battlefield of Waterloo, Apparently, just George went off by himself and um, found this tree peppered with gunfire. So he had it sent home, made into a chair with the inscription, Giorgio Augusto Europae Liberatori, i.e. George Augustus, Liberator of Europe. Right. And indeed, in later years, people weren't sure if he was going a little bit mad or just winding up the Duke of Wellington, but he used to claim that he had actually been part of the victorious cavalry charge at Waterloo. George IV started telling people how he'd been at Waterloo and in the cavalry charge. Knew, yeah. And apparently Wellington had to very tactfully reply, so you have told me, sir, but I did not witness this marvellous charge. Mm. And we don't get... He presumably stayed silent. We didn't get a record of his reply. <laughs> no. no. So that, that's really all we've got. The thing is, in support of George... If we hadn't done Waterloo last time, we'd mm. have gone into it in much more detail this time and it would have seemed more impressive. Yeah, um, uh, 
But it, I mean, I, a lot of the score I gave Battle in this last week was for, for both <clears throat> Waterloo and Trafalgar. Which was when mm. George III was Corpus Mentis. So it would only be half of that at best. Yeah. And I... So I appreciate that we need to give it to George. If we gave it to uh, George the Third, sorry, we need to give it to George the Fourth. So at most it's going to be five, and his just general bragging and nonsense <laughs> about actually being there. I'm taking two off, <laughs> so I'm giving him three. Uh, I'm also going to take a little bit off, but I won't be quite as harsh. I'm going to give him a four for battliness, so that is a total of nine. Mm. I don't even like that. I just don't think I like his character. Scandal! This is a bit more up George's oh, yes. street. Here's some serious scandaling. Mm. First of all, his philandering. Yes. Uh, Richard Sheridan, the uh, playwright, who's a great friend of George IV, said that he was too much every lady's man to be the man of any lady. Oh, that's well neat. And one of his early biographers, Huish, however you pronounce it, uh, said that like the bee, roaming from flower to flower, sipping the honey, but never visiting the flower again. Oh dear! Mm. <laughs> I see, okay. This is—I mean, this is his specialist subject. This one, very, very much. Said so to have seduced uh, one of the Queen's maids of honour when he was sixteen. Becomes infatuated with an actress called Mary Robinson, mm. also known as Perdita, because she played Perdita in *The Winter's Tale*, where George saw her for the first time. He wrote her lots and lots of love letters, gave her a twenty thousand pound bond a year, in effect, saying you know, give her all this money that she could have. So George III first of all found out about the letters that she was threatening to publish. Yeah. So had to get Lord North to buy them off her, and then found out about this <laughs> bond. So she, this one was going to blackmail mm. him as well as being paid twenty thousand pounds a year. So then um, Fox had to sort out the annuity and then you know reduce that to yeah. something a bit more manageable. Wow. And then Fox had an affair with her as well. <laughs> and apparently, then developed something of a taste for older women. Right. So he had Lady Jersey um, with whom he was. Uh, in love with for a number of years, um, who was a grandmother when George really? came to her, and older than himself. Also Lady Conningham, another figure, uh, later on in his reign, a daughter of a self-made Yorkshire businessman. And this is just a cross-section. There's a lot yeah. of women yeah, we could yeah. be listing oh, here. Yeah. Right. So he's, so he's the perennial bee. Okay. So, tick for his buzzing around. And also, most controversially of all, ironically, the most romantic and genuine relationship of all of these mm. was Mariah Fitzherbert. Right. Which on one level is nicer because he does seem to have genuine affection for her and it's a much more long-standing relationship. But he marries her. She's um, not particularly beautiful, barely curly-haired, full-figured woman, twice widowed by 1781 when she was 25. Um, But she was a straight-laced Roman Catholic. Mm. So initially she spurns him Mm. until he stabs himself. What? Not very deeply, but in this sort of show of sort of romantic um, despondency. It's almost Byronic. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So she says, all right then, all right, I'll be your mistress. I'll be your flower. 1785, they're secretly married by a priest from a debtor's prison. Mm. Because that, obviously, then they would do favours for people who wanted to get these secret marriages, so then they give them money so they could escape the debtor's prison. And it's illegal. As you said, it goes against the Royal Marriages Act, because there's no permission, and the Act of Succession... Because he's marrying a Catholic. Yeah. So technically, if George III had agreed to this marriage, then George IV would have been barred from the throne by marrying her. Yeah, it would have been a Wallace Simpson business. Yeah. So, you know, this is serious, (laughs) seriously scandalous stuff. Um, Fox hears about this and hears rumours of the marriage, and George IV assures him he wouldn't do anything so stupid as to do that. 
resulting in the fact that Fox basically goes up in Parliament and says, this is a complete lie. He definitely, definitely hasn't married her. Oh, he's making a fool of everyone. So Fox technically lies to Parliament. <laughs> um, ultimately, they fall out, and Mariah doesn't like the fact that he ends up taking all these other mistresses. So that, it's at the same time. So he's he's oh, deeply okay. in love with her, but yeah. right, okay. Um, but she writes a very kind letter to him, hoping that saying she hopes that he'll recover when he's dying. She was a bit put out when he didn't uh, reply, but of course that was because he died. Um, <laughs> but it was found that he kept that letter from her under his pillow, and oh. indeed he kept all the letters that um, she'd ever sent him and wore a locket um, of her miniature portrait around his neck. That would be sweet <laughs> if it wasn't for everything else. Yeah. Uh, mm. We also have his friendship with Charles James Fox. Yeah, now this sounds pretty good. Fox, uh, a radical Whig, leader of the opposition against Pitt and George III, a very powerful orator, a man who's sort of in the wilderness after the French Revolution because he still stands up for reform with mm. people's rights, and that's not what people are interested in at the time. So we'll give him some credit for that. He's a very, very strong figure. Yeah. But he's also a man of scandal. A libertine, a gambler, and a lover of duchesses. Quite literally. Probably including the Duchess of uh, Devonshire, we mentioned before. Mm. They enjoyed um, their friendship. George IV loved annoying his father by being friends with his greatest enemy. He applauded Fox when he strutted around wearing Washington's uh, army's colours. What? When was that? Did we do that last week? Yes, that's during the American Revolution. Fox would wear the blue of Washington's oh, yeah, army, yeah, yeah, George yeah. Ford would applaud him <laughs> yeah. whilst doing so. And um, comparison made at the time between Prince Hal and Falstaff right. um, from Henry V. Yeah. Well, well, from Henry IV, I suppose, these two sort of disreputable figures, mm. um, the prince and his lausch companion. There's one great example. They loved gambling, lots and lots of gambling, very high stakes. So the previous night, Fox had lost £10,000. But he wins it back the next night. He leaves the room where all his friends, including George IV, are gathered, and comes back with his trousers smelling rather foul. So people say, you fouled your breeches. And he says, I have not fouled my breeches. So he takes bets of up to £10,000. And Fox wins the bet because it turned out he'd left the room, bribed a servant to foul Fox's trousers that he was wearing so that he could then go back and quite rightly say, I did not foul my own trousers. That is ridiculous. He, I mean, what? There's so many other ways to make a bet. <laughs> there are. Then he must, I mean, these sound like awesome parties. <laughs> yes. like the Rolling Stones in the 70s. It's pretty, pretty raucous. 1784 um, election, very hard-fought contest. Pitt only uh, Fox only narrowly retained his seat. Uh, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, promised kisses for people oh. that voted for him. And when he finally won, George IV welcomed him back to Carlton House, wearing a victor's laurel wreath and indeed a fox's uh, brush in his hat. His tail <laughs> with the brush in his hat. That's really funny. And uh, they then partied into the night, yeah. and George IV ultimately was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. George IV was arrested. Well, as Prince of Wales was arrested. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no one had any cash on them, so he had to be bailed by his tailor. No way! Because they didn't recognise him at the time. Because <laughs> he was just so drunk and yeah. dishevelled. Wow. So there's some pretty serious partying going yeah. on there. Now, we, you asked before to the extent of his debts. Mm. These are estimates. 1795, it was thought, something like £630,000 which today would be about 50 million. Good grief. And who's this to, just dukes and... Oh, you know, all this gambling, all sorts of people. Parliament granted him an extra £65,000 a year, and then in 1803, another £60,000. 
on top of that. So by 1806, his debts had been cleared. Or rather, his 1795 debts had been cleared. Obviously, yeah. he'd amassed even more since then. And indeed, one of his treasurers admitted that his debts were beyond all kind of calculation whatever. That's, that's outrageous. It's a little bit outrageous, That's isn't it? So awful. <laughs> and also, as we alluded to, he gets a little bit large. Mm. Gilray, a, a famous caricaturist, in 1792, when he was 30, as the, the Prince of Wales, um, he had this cartoon called A Voluptuary Under the Horrors of Digestion, which depicted George, the Prince of Wales, slumped in a chair, recovering from a huge meal, his belly bursting from his breeches, his face on the point of apoplexy, and surrounded by empty wine and unpaid bills. Mm. Wellington, in um, 1830, noted mm. one occasion George IV's breakfast included pigeon and beef steak pie, a bottle of Moselle, a glass of champagne, two glasses of port, followed by a glass of brandy. That'll do it, won't it? He's For breakfast. Text, yeah, textbook out there. 1797, he weighed about 17 stone, was addicted to laudanum, which is sort of opium. Yeah. Um, and he was nicknamed um, sometimes the Prince of Wales, oh, as in the uh, sea-dwelling animal. <laughs> Final years, 1824, a corset was made for him with a waist of 50 inches. His weight increased about 22 stone, and his stomach was said to have reached his knees. Oh, that's gross. So that's why he became reclusive, embarrassed to be seen in public. Yeah, just eat less. So indeed, when he went for carriage rides in Windsor Park, a groom had to ride on ahead, ordering people to go inside so that they wouldn't really? look at him. You'd definitely say outside. Mm. <laughs> Please go inside. <laughs> An enormously fat king is about yeah. to come through. You this, this I've got to see. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yes, that is the rather scandalous mm. affairs of George IV. I mean, we haven't had a lot of what has become known as sex with nuns. Yes. So long. Um... So that's fun. Yeah. Um, One of which was technically went against the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though I don't... Yeah, although it's also it's also an affair. Lots of affairs. It's not just... You could technically also suggest that he was guilty of bigamy. Yeah, true. Because yeah. this was before, obviously, Caroline yeah. of Brunswick. Technically, the Church of England doesn't recognise it as right. a marriage, but the Roman Catholic Church recognised it. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It doesn't have a Thomas Beckett or a... Thomas know, Beckett. Uh, sorry, yeah. Or, or the big sort of things that are resonating through history. But it's just really, really textbook good stuff. Textbook. I mean, it's sort of... I suppose it's the way that things have moved on, that when he wants to get his divorce, he doesn't cut anybody's head off. Yeah, there's no death. So it's not quite Henry VIII, although yeah. obviously there are similarities in terms of divorcing your wife mm. and getting enormously fat. Yeah, I mean, the weight thing, that's all right. Um, the debts, though, <laughs> yes. that is awful. It's a big score. Yeah. I, I, I don't think we've had um, any buzzing like this since Charles II. Nope, certainly. So I'll go, I'll go four for that, hmm. because I'd like to... Or maybe three, because you'd want... Um, some murder to make up another third, but there isn't any that. But there is that debt, which is going to whack that straight up to six. Pooing in pants and... Pooing in pants, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these parties. Mm -hmm. Seven for the unknown that went on at those parties. Because <laughs> yeah. I imagine there's all kinds of crazy that we don't know happened. Just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give them an eight. I think that's mm. very good, solid scandal. 
Mm. So that is a score of 15 for Scandal. Subjectivity. Well, I don't imagine you're expecting much of I'm not expecting any, any quality here. here. No. However, I'm going to give him a go. Right. First of all, his character. Hasn't come across very well thus far. Terrible. Some people would suggest that once she gets to know him, he's a good guy. Mm. He's a bon viveur. Mm. Excellent host. When sober, high quality conversation at dinner parties. Apparently he was able to quote Homer and Virgil off by heart to people. Mm. Although Lord Erskine suggested that if you went regularly, you'd hear the same passage repeated (laughs) over and over again. Very talented at mimicry. Right. Uh, Irish MP John Wilson Croker noted that he was unequalled for a combination of personal imitation with the power of exhibiting the character of those he was mocking. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, he doesn't come across as a natural at this, like, in the same way that Charles II would, well, for example. Well, historian Tom Ambrose said, if one were to consider which British monarch one would most enjoy having dinner with, the choice would surely be either Charles II or George IV. Charles II. He's wrong. I think we'll find it, and we see as this goes along, they they get on very well, I think, Charles II yeah. and George IV, yeah. and they would have quite a party yeah. together. But you know that at that party, George IV would be the one causing the trouble, and Charles would be getting away with it by being charming to everyone. <laughs> and so he'd lean on Charles for that. Mm. He is also, George IV, a very kind man. Really? His physician and secretary, Dr. Knighter, noted he only had to hear of anybody in distress and he genuinely wished to help. So he gave very generously to hospitals and orphanages, supported man Richard Martin, who founded the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, yeah. and indeed George himself encouraged legislation against the wanton ill-treatment of animals. He also gave money to a society to abolish chimney sweeping. Oh, right. And his niece also commented on his kindness. And that niece was one Victoria. Oh, right. She is in our story now. She condemned his morals, utterly, Mm. but noted that um, he always took notice of me. She was going for a walk in the park with her mother, and then George IV comes along in the carriage and stops it and says, Ah, pop her in! (laughs) And then he picks up Victoria, pops her on his knee, and they go off on this lovely little adventure all around Windsor Park. That's nice, yeah. He had a very classless attitude. He believed... Judging people by what they did rather than their background. Mm. So he had lots of friendships with people of all walks of life, including his servants, to whom aristocrats generally completely ignore and are generally very horrible to. All of his servants were given generous pensions when they retired. He regularly visited the kitchen staff. And in 1817, at Christmas, he gave a supper party exclusively for servants. Really? Including gardeners and everybody. And he sat down and had, had it with them. Well, that's good. I like that. He liked working-class pursuits. Um, he heard one time that an ordinary pub in Grey's Inn had the best ale in London. So off he went, down to the pub. Find out if it's true. Had a pint and then chatted with clientele at the bar. So, it, this is, I just can't imagine <laughs> that at all. Was that, I mean, how much security would he have had, do you reckon? Just Very limited, I would imagine, at this period. Yeah. And remember that time in 1784 where he was arrested? Yeah. And when the police realised who he was, they were mortified. They thought, oh my God, we've arrested the Prince of Wales. And he clapped them on the shoulders and said, offended my good fellows, by no means. Thank God the laws of this country are superior to rank. And when men from high station forget the decorums of community, it is fit that no distinction should be made with respect to them. It should make an Englishman proud to see the Prince of Wales obliged to send for a tailor to bail him. What a great take on it. I mean, yes, I totally agree, but <laughs> this, this coming from... I didn't expect it to come from his mouth. However, he does have a more tangible legacy mm. in terms of cultural patronage. Okay. 
the Regency classic period for so much going yeah. on, and George IV genuinely leads this. He is the man that's making the fashion, mm-hmm. as it were. And indeed, in fashion itself, he leads. Um, wigs are out. No longer wearing these big silly Georgian oh, wigs. Right. Trousers are in instead of breeches, presumably because all the breeches have poo in them. <laughs> Birmingham uh, manufacturer apparently sent him buttons as a gift. So he started wearing them, and it became this massive trend, to the extent that when he died, uh, the button trade was plunged into a desperate condition. So what, buttons weren't fashionable beforehand. No. I suppose it was all ties and lace. Mm. And... So now buttons are in. Right. In art, supports Reynolds, Gainsborough, Romney, Stubbs, Wilkie, Hopner, buys Rembrandt, Rubens, and Van Dyck's triple portrait of Charles I. So he's oh, yeah. massive collection. He provides strong support to the foundation of the National Gallery. Okay. In England. Include leading the government to spend uh, £57,000 of purchasing the collection of John Julius Angustine, which is sort of the initial basis of the gallery. And George himself said, I have not formed it for my own pleasure alone, but to gratify the public taste. This is rather good. This is, I mean, unexpe- yeah, you're right, completely unexpected. In music, um, he's a very musical man. Rossini was invited to Brighton and George IV sang a duet with him. Oh, it was, was he any good? Well, apparently he was fairly musical. Also, he accompanied Hayden. Um, musically, and Hayden apparently said that he played quite tolerably for an amateur. <laughs> literature, um, he was first to contribute 1,000 guineas to this literary fund to establish a Royal Society of Literature for impoverished writers, mm. of which Samuel Taylor Coleridge is one of the first beneficiaries. Donated George III's 65,000 volume library to the British Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, pop- uh, published in 1813, and George IV loved all of her novels, to the extent that he made sure that all of his houses had a complete set of her novels. And other than literature in his time, Byron becomes an overnight sensation with Child Harold, Walter Scott has all his novels, Robert Southey's Poet Laureate, 1816, Frankenstein's published. Really? Yeah. I thought it was much later. No, 1816. No, no, However, his biggest legacy of all is in architecture. Yeah. Very much leads the way here. Carlton House, uh, which was sadly later knocked down because it fell in, uh, became derelict, but rebuilt it into this magnificent palace. It was a design sensation of the day all across Europe. And on 20th of June, 1811, he opened it up to the public. All right. First time that the public, you know, had been allowed inside. So we don't, it's not there now? No, it's yeah. not there anymore. Yeah. And um, it was only that one day it was open because apparently 30,000 people tried to enter. Really? It's a bit of a melee and a lot of people apparently lost their shoes. <laughs> More famously, Brighton Pavilion. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, it's still there. This is rebuilt from just this sort of plain old classical-style pavilion into this sort of oriental fantasy. <laughs> Indy on the outside, Chinese on the inside, these wonderful murals and domes and incredibly mm. spectacular yeah. affair. Also new technology, so gas lighting and central heating, right. which apparently was left on throughout the year, regardless of the weather. <laughs> and indeed, Brighton really benefits. It, in fact, it really made by George IV. Population rose from 3,500 in 1785 to 40,000 in 1820. Because he visits for months and months, lots mm. of jobs. Indeed, the Sussex Weekly Advertiser said that the king is to this town what the sun is to our hemisphere. Yeah, well, I mean, it's still a, you know, a huge attraction to Brighton today, isn't it? And it's largely because of George IV yeah. in this period. Windsor Castle, a round tower, so famous as Ray's, so we get that wonderful romantic silhouette. Is oh right, yeah, yeah, it's a new yeah, bit. Not yeah. the whole of Winter Castle, yeah. but the Round Tower, and also a Chinese fishing temple is built Where's in that? the gardens because George IV had taken to fishing in his later years and once took Victoria along with him. Oh, really? So you had some fishing the yeah. 
London was transformed into a victorious imperial capital because he wanted to outdo Napoleon's Paris. So we've got this grand processional route from Regent's Park and um, Regent Street, mm. of course, Regent, so it's in the period it comes from, um, which all these middle-class terraces are plastered and painted to look like palaces. Oh, so wow. we get the Georgian facade. It's, oh, yeah. It's this George. Oh, right. Who does all of this. And, um, of course, he doesn't do it all himself. There's a man, John Nash, who's responsible for the London things. Buckingham Palace, of mm. course, becomes Buckingham Palace in this period. Uh, Brighton Pavilion as well. St. James's Park, Regent's Canal. Wire man, Wyatt Field as Windsor. And he's funding a lot of this. Oh, well, the public are funding a lot of this, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it right. all comes okay. from George, and that is yeah. a lasting legacy which is still there and still defines London and Brighton. And There's some good government amongst all of this. Mm. As you said, he does this tour of Britain. Yeah. 1821, he goes on a tour of Ireland. Now, remember, the background of Anglo-Irish relations, we might recall from our previous episodes, hasn't always been spectacularly successful. No, it's been between and Generally, if anyone comes to Ireland, it's at the head of an army. <laughs> Whether it's Henry II, John tugging everybody's beards, oh, yeah. Cromwell yeah. just massacring everybody. Yeah. George IV, in contrast, lots of Irish friends and sympathies, but he goes to Ireland. Yeah. Arrives at a Howth Harbour near Dublin, met by a large, cheering crowd... Much to his delight, because he's never really been very popular yeah. in England. Um, he addressed this rural-looking man, turned out to be a farmer, and he asked him if he'd got a cow. And the man didn't have a cow. So George says, then you shall have one. I think every poor Irishman should have at least a cow, a pig, and some fowl. And sure enough, the man... He received a cow. A cow. Oh, that's good. They then went, um, crowds following them everywhere, to the uh, Viceregal Lodge, when George IV followed by thousands of people, these crowds following him, the servants tried to close the gate to stop them getting in, but George waves them aside, encourages the crowd to follow him in, and he gets up onto the stairs, about to go in, and then gives a little speech yeah. to the people. And he says to them, Rank, honour and station are nothing, but to feel that I live in the hearts of my Irish subjects is to me the most exalted happiness. I assure you, my dear friends, I have an Irish heart and will this night give proof of my affection towards you in bumpers of whiskey punch. And so he just hands out booze? Hands out lots of booze. Oh, that's great. And that is Charles, all over. He's very much, and you think, the history of England and Ireland yeah. in this period, and he's saying, I've got an Irish heart, have lots of whiskey, yeah, that is you're true. all great. Yeah. So they absolutely love him. He wears a hat decorated with shamrock. <laughs> Protestants, Catholics alike, particularly people from the you know, working class, even more so than everybody else, really love him. And indeed, his character, he's laid back, hard drinking, wears his heart on his sleeve. He's sort of more Irish in character than he is English in many yeah. ways. Yeah. They really, really like him. So much so, Daniel O'Donnell presents him with a crown of laurel leaves. His, his, the his, Catholic Emancipation yeah, chaps yeah. hoping, thinking, wow, this is our chance yeah. to get Catholic Emancipation. Indeed, he even proposes, Daniel Connell proposes, that out of Irish taxpayers' money, they build a palace for George in Ireland. George, when he leaves, in tears, saying, I have never felt sensations of more delight than since I came to Ireland. I cannot expect to feel any superior nor many equal till I have the happiness of seeing you again. God bless you, my friends. God bless you all. That can't have gone down well, though. Once that, once that wave of optimism has passed and everyone's got all their cows and he's gone home. You could argue that this is one of the great missed opportunities in Anglo-Irish history. Mm-hmm. Swift reform, i.e. emancipation, say within a year or so, could have absolutely transformed Anglo-Irish relations. In hindsight, could even have almost solved yeah. the Irish problem, as we would yeah. call it, it in English history. Troubles. 
But instead, he's reluctant to sign for eight years. Ireland ascends back into disorder and violence, and all the goodwill is essentially That is lost. a hugely missed opportunity. Huge missed opportunity. But, give him his due, he went, they loved him, and he didn't do anything nasty. Yeah. Which actually <laughs> is a pretty big improvement yeah. for English rulers. Yeah, I suppose so. After that, 1822, he goes to Scotland. Same. Very much the same. Walter Scott, the novelist, organised the whole trip, persuaded George to come. The first uh, monarch to visit since Charles II in 1651. Since Charles II? In 1651. Anne had technically been in Scotland as a princess, but But she didn't know as queen. As queen, rather. So it's the first monarch in Scotland since 1651. That's ridiculous. That's... Yeah, we remember, of course, the context. A hundred years ago, we had Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Jacobite rebellions, yeah, etc., etc. Walter Scott also insists that everybody wears Highland dress, which had effectively been suppressed after Mm. the Jacobite rebellions. So, and George IV as well, he's encouraged to do it. So he sails up in the Royal Yacht, the Royal George, from Mm. Greenwich to Leith, near Edinburgh, enjoys two weeks of balls and receptions before a grand procession from Holyrood Palace to Edinburgh. And George very much gets into the swing of it. He buys Highland dress, Stuart tartan, uh, favours Scottish music, dances, whiskies and porridge. Final banquet, he delivers a toast to the clans and chieftains of Scotland. The Royal Mile, they're cheering crowds again, despite the fact that it's raining. Mm. George is loving it. He's waving his hat for 15 minutes. (laughs) And he says, good God, what a fine sight. I had no conception there was such a fine scene in the world, and to find it in my own dominions. The people are as beautiful and as extraordinary as the scene. Rain. I feel no rain. Never mind. I must cheer the people. Wow. So now, not only that, not only the, the other fashions, he's got tartan fashion. He's, he's effectively brought that back. He has. This is the legacy. Tartan becomes a mass industry. Mm. And again, that's when it is re-emerges. This is also when we get this sort of the image of the noble Highlander. Yeah. Which adorns whiskey bottles and shortbread yeah. tins the yeah. world over. It's a big, big influence on modern Scottish identity. It all comes from this trip, really, and so inspires yeah. future royal visits. Yeah. And there is some actual good government in this period, good mm. initiatives. George constantly intercedes um, for clemency for people who have been put forward for capital punishment. So he's constantly uh, trying to persuade Robert Peel, the Home Secretary, to let people off. Mm. And he always said, and like he'd be up at two o'clock in the morning, getting Peel out of bed, trying to get him to let people off. <laughs> and then he'd be really, really happy and chirpy if he ever succeeded. So oh, in effect, saved people. Um, he also abolished the legal use of torture in Hanover. Mm. So how does he get wind of all these things? He has to. Well, he's king, so things get mm. you know, sent to him. Okay. Um, he opposes, um, also, well, he readily grants a request to abolish the flogging of female prisoners. Mm. Just still thing at the moment. So, you know, he's, this is the kindest thing again. When he's got these things put to him. Yeah, he t- chooses that. To do option. something with it. We do have Catholic emancipation. He didn't like it, but yeah, he does ultimately go along with it. And also in 1829, we have the Metropolitan Police. Oh, it's a lack of organised law enforcement officers. Previously, we'd had these uncentralised things like the Bow Street Runners and Marine Police Force, but Peel establishes the London Police Force based on civilian rather than paramilitary lines, and so that the police officers only armed with a truncheon and a rattle. <laughs> the rattle being to attract attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, just keep them entertained. Yes. So, actually... That took actually, us quite a long time to go through all the good stuff that's, there. That's really good stuff too. But, of course, there is 
another side to it. Mm. He is hugely unpopular. I can't understand why. Contrast with his prudent, respectable domestic father. We've got this guy who's fat, he's spending all this money, yeah, wasting money thing, away. Yeah. Cartoonists, of course, he's at the peak of the likes of Gilray and Crookshank, so he's an easy target, being mm-hmm. fat, drinking, gambling, womanising, etc. Lay Hunt in 1812, a violator of his word, a libertine over head and ears in debt, and disgrace, a despiser of domestic ties, the companion of gamblers and demireps, a man who has just closed half a century without one single claim on the gratitude of this country or the respect of posterity. Yeah, I mean, there is that. The Times, a hard-drinking, swearing, whoring man who at all times would prefer a girl and a bottle to politics and a sermon, whose only state of happiness were gluttony, drunkenness and gambling. There was never an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. We had the Regency crisis. Mm. The only reason that's a crisis is because of the character of George IV, yeah, because everyone's like, oh, God, we can't let him be in charge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be awful. And he does get that... Whether it's true or not, there are rumours of pretty unpleasant behaviour. He was said to have gone around London clubs impersonating George III in his state of madness. Um, Betsy Sheridan, the sister of Richard, claimed that one occasion he was apparently peering at his father through a keyhole. And then father saw him. So George falls scarpered, and George III was calling his servants, demanding, saying, oh, my son was here. And then they look and say, no, he's definitely not here. So he was apparently left just sort of staring at the keyhole. Oh, that's horrible. Also, horrifically wasteful extravagance. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable, that's terrible. In a period in which there's poverty and real difficulty, particularly after the war ends, Percy Shelley, the poet, said, this entertainment will cost £120,000, nor will it be the last bauble which the nation must buy to amuse this overgrown bantling of regency. Mm. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't go very well in terms of political reform is very much opposed in this period. As she said, economic strife, about 400,000 soldiers that got discharged and came back, forcing wages down, but also unemployment. Ironworks in Shropshire in Wales and Scotland decline. There's a bad harvest in 1816. Things are pretty rough. And the government doesn't do a lot to help. 1815 corn laws. Um, this meant that no foreign corn could be sold in Britain unless the domestic price attained 80 shillings and a quarter. In other words, it was protecting landed interest against falling prices, so it kept grain unnecessarily high. Right. Good for them, not good for poor people who are trying to eat. So you get famines. And so this class consciousness, radical agitation, a sense of the rich benefiting against the workers, this is where northern English factories like Lancashire and Yorkshire, this is where really we start to get this Mm -hmm. industrial divide. Calls for shorter hours or better wages... And we, so, as we said, we had the Peterloo Massacre. So this was Lancashire, where there's a population of one million, mm. represented by just two people. Where For the whole of Lancashire. Whole of, yeah, the whole of Lancashire. Chronic depression. So a radical orator, Henry Hunt, was asked to deliver an address to an assembly of about sixty to 80,000 people in St Peter's Field. So he was going to do talking about all the things they needed to do, but the magistrates intervene, and a cavalry, as we said, charged, killed 11 people, wounded about 600, which include women and children, amongst the dead and the wounded. And they follow it up with the six acts where, despite the outrage, magistrates are given additional powers to act against reform meetings, seditious meetings, Mm -hmm. 
It's not great stuff. No, it's not great. And, and it's the kind of thing that you're expecting to hear about Ireland. Yes. <laughs> when the king goes over and does that sort of terrible, terrible thing. Mm. But this is happening in Britain. 1821 is when the Manchester Guardian, which of course now is the Guardian, is established to uh, enforce principles of liberty and reforms. This is really a symptom of the fact that reform isn't happening. And, and it's just not happening because... Because George has seen what's happened with reform in France. George certainly didn't want the Whigs to come into play, but also the politics of the time, they were mm. opposed to reform. Mm. And as you said, Catholic emancipation, although it does come, it's only belatedly, and George yeah. IV himself had been opposed to it. And George doesn't show strong government at all as king. He's a weak ruler. He puts a lot of bluster about about how he's going to oppose his ministers and he doesn't like this person and this person's got nothing and he's going to get rid of him. In reality, they ignore him most of the time except mm. on the big issues. And even there, Catholic emancipation, he accepted Wellington's arguments, ultimately, about Catholic emancipation. And then the Duke of Cumberland, his brother, says, no, we can't have this, this is terrible. So then he changes his mind. So then Wellington has to storm back and say, look, you're not going to have a government unless you do this. We see the goodwill he was able to create in Ireland and in Scotland. How he's able to be this public figure that people love and he's intelligent. George IV could have done a lot more. There were some golden opportunities here. He doesn't do it. No, it's a shame. It really is. Um, I I think a lot... I think it's, it's mostly good. I think his wasteful extravagance meant that he was unpopular, which more stuff sort of got pinned... Mm to him as a consequence um, so that's terrible but on the other hand there's all that other stuff really we've got the cultural patronage and the cultural legacy it and is some nice bits yeah. and bobs that he does yeah but you'd hope I mean you'd hope anyone was nice mm. yeah it's, the, it's all this culture and, and okay the Catholic emancipation yeah that happens grudgingly yeah if you catch him on his own or if you speak to him, or if you have a party with him, yeah. or if you say, look at this awful thing that's happening yeah. to this poor chap, yeah. then he'd be lovely. Yeah. But just generally left to his own devices, he's just going to spend money and drink and womanise yeah. and all these sorts of things. Yeah, and he's not a fan of actually doing any work, so where he could make a... I mean, he wants to give the farmer a cow, yes. but where he could give millions of people bread, it's, yes. it's, it comes in the message from government, and he's bored, yeah. and he'd rather get on with partying. Yeah. Can't go higher than five. I think I agree, I think they have to cancel each other out. We have yeah. this incredible legacy, and yet we have you know the Peterloo massacre, posing all these sorts of things, wasting all this money. Although some of that wasted money, of course, is the architectural legacy. Yeah, but the gambling debts are low. Gambling debts, of course. I mean, that's. I, I mean, I can't imagine that kind of money now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. So um, he, he yeah. slapped down, bang down the middle. Then ten for subjectivity. Longevity. He's only actually king from eighteen twenty to eighteen thirty. Really? So but of course he was regent yeah. from eighteen eleven. But we're only going to give it to him for when he was mm. actually king for this. So that is a score, well, that's a yearly, 10.42, which is a score, 3.28. Oh, dear. Isn't very high. Dynasty, not the programme. Tragically, he doesn't have any surviving children. No way. With all that effort he put in. Legitimate. Ah. Surviving children. (laughs) Rather like Charles II, in fact, of course. Um, He did have a daughter with Caroline, Princess Charlotte. She um, inherited his talent for mimicry, apparently, and also her parents' emotional sensitivities. 
Ben, she identified with the character Marianne in Sense and Sensibility, which is the flighty, yeah. emotional one, Kate Winslet in the film. Uh, but she agrees um, ultimately to marry this chap, uh, Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. Very much in love with him, happy together. Apparently he was the perfection of a lover. Oh. That... But, sadly, when a child did come after miscarriage, came late, stillborn, and she herself afterwards died at the age of 21. Crikey. George IV himself said to have struck his forehead with both his hands and fainted and then spent three months in mourning. Mm, Even worse, um, her doctor, Croft, um, he decided against using this sort of new invention of forceps mm. to effectively pull the child out mm. when it's a difficult birth. George IV absolved him of any blame, but he was much criticised by the public and then he later committed suicide. So, oh God. Mm. Really tragic. Afterwards, practitioners tended to favour intervention in using forceps in difficult births. Mm. It's, you know, as a way to try and do something. But the result is, when she died in 1817, George III had 56 illegitimate grandchildren. 56? Illegitimate grandchildren, but no legitimate grandchild. Right. Oh, Which is why the throne... This is throwing this right out, then. Uh, but so that is a zero for Dynasty, which is, of course, a zero... That's ultimately. So he gets a total score of 37.28, which is not one of the highest scores, I'm afraid. No, where's that? 27? But just ahead of James I. Right. And just uh, below Charles II. Yeah, quite right. However, we have to decide whether or not he's got that greatness, that star mm. quality, that lasting legacy, which we call... Rex Factor! There are sort of different ways to view George. The Duke of Wellington, however, probably got him best. The most extraordinary compound of talent, wit, buffoonery, obstinacy and good feeling, in short, a medley of opposite qualities with a great preponderance of good that I ever saw in any character in my life. He really has nailed him. Mm. It, it was really hard to try and sum, sum him up, but that's done it. Well done, Wellington. He's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's all over the place. I mean, there is a lasting legacy in cultural terms. Yeah. A huge one. He does have star quality. Y- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Just think of that party with Charles II and George IV. When they both high-five each other. You yeah. got in two! All right! <laughs> um, I can't think, believe I'm c- considering it, really. <laughs> like, like 20 minutes ago, I was thinking there's no way... So, yeah, so looking at Welling- what Wellington's got here, because I totally agree with that. Mm. Most extraordinary compound talent, yes, wit, buffoonery, obstinacy and good feeling. A medley of opposite qualities. Mm. That's what it is. But, but the people didn't see enough of the good st- stuff and no. hated him. Exactly. I mean, I do... <clears throat> is there an example so far of someone we've ordered the Rex Factor to who was so unpopular with, with the general public? There have certainly been unpopular kings that we've given the Rex Factor to, but then they would have been the likes of William the Conqueror, who conquered the country yeah, and yeah, was thus yeah. unpopular. George the Fourth, does he really do anything that's so incredible that it overrides no. his unpopularity? I don't think so. He's, I think he's got everything, but he didn't turn up to the final class. He could. And he could have done it, but he was drunk. It. It's a, it's a it's a tragic loss, and he's only got himself to blame. Really, yeah. he could have done it. He could have done it. Yeah. But also, you could argue George III, the way his sort of overbearing, almost tyrannical parenting as the young child pushed him into that rebellion. If he'd given him something to do, cause mm. he didn't give him any roles. 
as Prince Reed, and you've given him something to do, if you've been a bit more supportive, you just let him be a bit more, mm. maybe it would have turned out better. Yeah, but he's only got this up. I imagine his school reports would have been very similar to this. He's only so much talent, but he's only got himself to face. <laughs> yes. And um, as a consequence, he's not made prefect, nor does he get the Rex Factor from no, me. It's a no from you, and it's a no from me as well. He could have done it, but he didn't. No. So that's a no for George the Fourth. Anyway, that's it for us this week and George the Fourth. Next time, if Ali isn't uh, too busy on television with oh, uh, Time Team. so cool. I'm so exhausted from it. <laughs> Standing around all day. It's very tiring. With the mug. Yeah, with the mug. Next time, we will be doing the oft-forgotten William the Fourth. Many people think we skip straight to Victoria, but no, there's one more before her, mm-hmm. William the Fourth. Yeah. Until Next then, time. goodbye. Cheerio.